Dear congregation, our texts will come from Galatians chapter 5, verse 22 and 23, dealing primarily with kindness as the fruit of the Spirit. Um, we're reminded of the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5, verse 22. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such there is no law. I'd like to see this demonstrated in Second Samuel chapter 9, especially this idea of kindness. See, David is an example seeking to show the kindness of God unto Jonathan, the house of Jonathan, uh, the house of Saul and family of Jonathan because of a covenant that is made with him previously. Second Samuel chapter 9, you can find it on page 481 in our pew Bible. Let us hear God's word. Now David said, Is there still anyone who is left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? And there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba. So when they had called him to David, the king said unto him, Are you Ziba? He said, At your service. Then the king said, Is there not still someone of the house of Saul who... To whom I may show the kindness of God. And Ziba said to the king, There is still a son of Jonathan who is lame in his feet. And so the king said to him, Where is he? And Ziba said to the king, Indeed, he is in the house of Machir, the son of Amiel, in Lodabar. Then King David sent and brought him out of the house of Machir, of the son of Amiel, from Lodabar. Now when Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, had come to David, he fell on his face and prostrated, prostrated himself. Then David said, Mephibosheth. And he answered, Here is your servant. So David said to him, Do not fear, for I will surely show you kindness for Jonathan your father's sake, and will restore to you all the land of Saul your grandfather, and you shall eat bread at my table continually. Then he bowed himself and said, What is your servant, that you should look upon such a dead dog as I? And the king called to Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, I have given to your master's son all that belonged to Saul and to all his house, you therefore and your sons and your servants shall work the land for him, and you shall bring in the harvest, that your master's son may have food to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's son, shall eat bread at my table always. Now Ziba had fifteen sons and twenty servants. Then Ziba said to the king, According to all that my lord the king has commanded his servant, so will your servant do. As for Mephibosheth, said the king, he shall eat at my table like one of the king's sons. Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah, and all who dwelt in the house of Ziba were servants of Mephibosheth. So Mephibosheth dwelt in Jerusalem, for he ate continually at the king's table, and he was lame in both his feet. Amen. May God bless the reading of his precious and infallible word. 
Dear congregation, as we come to the fruit of the Spirit called kindness, we first of all need to think about what kindness is. Kindness really gets to the heart of what love is and love for others. In a certain sense, it is to be very benevolent and caring for the needs of others, to seek to help them and to relieve burdens, to serve others and to be sympathetic to others. One person wrote that it is kind, kindness is love in work clothes or love in action. And yet we recognize that kindness and goodness, especially the next fruit, is they are very similar. And kindness really flows out of this more inward disposition to be kind, to be very sweet-hearted, to be merciful and gracious to others. And this is beautifully displayed, as we just read in Second Samuel 9, with David seeking to show kindness to the house of Saul, for Jonathan's sake, even to Mephibosheth. We recognize that the words are often translated loving kindness or mercy. Sometimes even with connotations of grace. And really this all flows out of a relationship of love. And if we look at it in God's, from God's side, it is really this covenant relationship of God. And that's the word that's often used in Hebrew is chesed recognizing the loving kindness of a covenant-keeping, relational God. And so this is really what we are talking about when we talk about kindness. And I would like to look at this really looking at various characters. First of all, we want to see God's kindness displayed. Secondly, we want to understand how King David is showing the kindness of God, and then reflect also, especially in way of examination for the Lord's Supper, our own kindness. First of all, then, God's kindness. God is love. And we read that in 1 Corinthians 13, that love is kind. And certainly then, God being a God of love, is also a God of kindness. And he exercises his kindness. As a matter of fact, we read in Jeremiah 9, verse 24, let him who glories glory in this, that he understands and knows God, me, he says, that I am the Lord exercising loving kindness. Let us boast, he says, glory in God's loving kindness and his judgment and his righteousness in the earth. For in these, he says, I delight. He delights in kindness. It's the very heart and the character of God as our heavenly Father, as we could hear this morning, as he provides for all of his creation. And in particular, in such a beautiful way for his people through his creation. And as one who has our Father in heaven as our Father, ought we not to want to boast and glory in our Father? I think of young children. 
how so often you look at your dad's and sometimes um, you look at your dad's hands and they're, and they're so much bigger than yours, so much stronger than yours. And, and um, one time I, I've heard the story about a little, little child who came up to the pastor and home visit and, and uh, he says, my, my dad's the strongest person in the world. The pastor looked at his dad and it's like, mm, he's not real strong. And he said, my dad's hands are so strong. And I looked at him again, and they're not real strong. But, but for this child, they were so strong. And, and he boasted in his father, in his father's power and character. And he wants every young children desire to be like their dad and to grow up to be strong like their dad. And, and so also, Jeremiah, the Lord is saying, if you want to glory in something, glory in who our God is, our Father in heaven, who is so kind, let us glory in Him, let us boast in Him, and let us desire to be like Him, and to grow up like Him. That's what it means to be conformed to the image of Christ. Because our God is so wonderfully kind can meditate on it. And isn't, isn't that really the evangelistic tool that Barnabas and Paul used, whether it be on, in, in Acts 14 in Lystra or, or Paul in Mars Hill, uh, coming to the people and showing them the very kindness and the power of God in his kindness, also through providence. And, and there they come to them and show them that God is in control of all things, giving rain from heaven for your crops and, and, and food for you to, to fill you and to fill your hearts with joy. This is the God who, who is ultimately kind, but they use that as a bridge to bring the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. That God in His ultimate kindness gave His only begotten Son that whosoever should believe in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. That's the ultimate witness of God's kindness. That's what we read in Titus 3, verse 4 through 6. When the kindness and the love of God our Savior toward men appeared, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to His mercy, He saved us. It's all because of His grace, His mercy, that He regenerates us, renews us by His Spirit, and He gives us abundantly this salvation through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Christ is kindness incarnate. He came in His kindness to dwell among us. He came doing miracles and all kinds of acts of kindness he encounters people who are at their lowest place. Think of the woman with an adult, caught in adultery, ready to be stoned. And he comes in his kindness. The Gospels are rich, rich testimonies of the kindness of Christ toward undeserving sinners, outsiders, those who are rejected in society. And he comes and he shows kindness to them. That's the kindness of God. Most of his rebukes and his judgments are called upon those who know better and who are 
false professors and things like that. But ultimately, his kindness is shown on the cross where he dies for sinners who are unworthy of God's grace and mercy and kindness. Isn't that what we read in Ephesians 2 of how we are so undeserving, but God who is rich in mercy and his great love. And then he goes on to show in verse 7 that in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. God is ultimately kind. Despite our unworthiness. And he's kind, even as we could meditate on this morning, in the midst of our afflictions. He's kind. He's good to us. Sometimes we don't always understand and comprehend the kindness of God in affliction. I think of when Jacob was ready to meet Esau. Jacob had messed things up so many times. You know, Esau thought might want to kill him. And, and, and Jacob's prayer before the Lord, as the Lord confirms that he's going to be with him, he says this in, in chapter 32. He says, I am unworthy of all the mercies, or literally, the kindness you have shown to your servant. Or, or later on in Genesis, when we find Joseph unjustly in prison, already he having been sold by his brothers and now in Egypt and now unjustly in prison, what do we read? That while he was in prison, the Lord showed him mercy. The same word is kindness. In affliction, the Lord was showing Joseph kindness. He granted him favor in the eyes and the sight of the keeper of the prison. And you think, well, what about Job? Who had everything taken away. Who was afflicted. More than I think any one of us could ever comprehend being afflicted. In Job 10, Job could say, by the grace of God, you grant me life and show me favor. Kindness. And in your care, you have preserved my spirit. That care there is God's providence in the midst of his affliction has upheld his spirit and he has shown him kindness. This is the kindness of God. And the kindness of God is taught by our Lord Jesus Christ. Think of the parable, the Samaritan, the good Samaritan in Luke chapter 10. When someone confronts Jesus, you know, what must I do to have eternal life? And he says, keep all of these commandments. You know, love your neighbor as yourself. 
And Jesus uses this parable to drive home this point. In Luke chapter 10, we read in verse 30 that a certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among the thieves. They stripped him of his clothing, wounded him, departed, leaving him half dead. And then a certain priest came down that road and he saw him and he passed by the other side. Likewise, a Levite. And he arrived at the place, came and looked and, and passed by the other side. But a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was and saw him and had compassion and went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. And he set him on his own animal and brought him to the inn to take care of him. And on the next day, when he departed, he took two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper and said to him, take care of him and whatever you more you spend when I come again I will repay you this is the kindness that Jesus wanted to drive home the priest might have said you know what I, I can't I can't uh, uh, go near what if that what if the person's dead and I touch that I'll become unholy so I'm just going to stay as far away as possible and maybe the Levite said too you know what I I can't get that close and and I don't want to defile myself and and to go on their way and, and do never even consider compassion for, for this certain man who, who now is overcome by thieves and, and devastated, stripped of his clothing, wounded, leaving him about dead. And yet, this Samaritan, this nobody, this Gentile, Jesus says, comes, has compassion, and shows kindness. That's the kindness that Christ is teaching about. That's the kindness that David reflected as a type of Christ. Especially as we could read 2 Samuel 9. Just uh, turn there again as we see in our second point. King David's kindness. And what did King David want to do? He wanted to show the house of Saul the kindness of God. This loving kindness of God. This, this character of God. He's so overwhelmed about all that God had given him. And even the promise that you find in 2 Samuel 7 is that he will have an everlasting throne. And, and, and he's confident in who God is and what He's done for him, overwhelmed with the kindness and the goodness of God. He wants to show that now to others. And so you can hear Him in His courts as He calls upon those of Him, those who are advisors to Him, and say, is there anyone in the house of Saul that I can show the kindness of God to? And they become a Ziba. You could almost hear those servants of, of David whispering, can't you? What are you thinking, David? You want to show kindness to the house of Saul? Don't you know how Saul wanted to kill you? Don't you know that Saul and his, his family was against you? What are you thinking, David? After all, we got to remember in those times, if you took, took the throne, you, you probably wanted to make sure that Nobody was left to come and say, you know what? I have a right to be king. You don't have a right to be king. But here, David, 
You want to show kindness to the house of Saul, your enemy? What are you thinking? But David wants to do it for a different reason. He wants to do it because of Jonathan, whom he made a covenant with. And because of his love for Jonathan. He wants to do it for Jonathan's sake. Not necessarily for Saul's sake, but he wants to do it for Jonathan's sake. And his love for Jonathan. And his covenant that he made with Jonathan. Very similar to the kindness of God, who makes covenant with his people. And does so for his son's sake, the Lord Jesus Christ. He shows his kindness unto us. But, but David here now comes to Ziba. And Ziba, do you know of anyone left in the house of Saul that I can show the kindness of God to? Ziba. <laughs> you can almost imagine Ziba there. It's like, do I even tell the king the truth? Maybe, maybe I should just shut my mouth. Because after all, maybe the king is setting a trap for me. And if I knew that someone was left in the house of Saul, he might just kill me too. But he says to David, no, there's yet one from the house of Saul. Jonathan's son. This is Mephibosheth. But David, he's lame on both his feet. He's not a threat to you at all. It's probably wanting to clarify, David, this is why I haven't told you. None, nonetheless, David is not concerned about all of that. All he says is, where is he? Well, he's in Lodabar. He's at a distance. He's not close to us. But immediately, the king doesn't care about any of that. King David says, go and send him. Go send servants and, and bring him back to me. Go fetch him. And so he goes to get Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth, a cripple, a nobody, in a desert place in Lodabar, far away from the worship of God. And he comes to King David. And Mephibosheth, instead of standing up and saying, I have a right to be king, he simply bows before King David and says, Behold, here I am, your servant. I have nothing to offer you. I'm, I'm a cripple, but I am your servant. I don't even have a right to your kindness. And, and yet David comes to him and seeks to restore him in kindness. He says, Don't be afraid, Mephibosheth. Fear not. I'm showing you the kindness of God. And I'm restoring to you all that you've lost in your Father's name. I'm restoring to you the land. I'm restoring to you the, this royal place. You're going to sit at my table continually. I'm going to give you all that you've lost, Mephibosheth. And you're going to have a personal relationship with me. You're going to be like my son. You're going to sit as my son at my table continually. amazing testimony of kindness that David is showing to Mephibosheth. And even, even Mephibosheth now, all he can do is receive it. King David, why would you look on me as such a dead dog as me, such an unworthy, worthless person as me and show me such kindness? Why? And Mephibosheth is still lame and, and weak and frail. He can't do anything. 
He can't take care of all this land. He can't, he can't even begin to have the blessings of all of these privileges. And David continues. He says, Ziba, you and all of your servants, which were many. He says, you're going to take care of the land for Mephibosheth. And you're going to bring in the crops for Mephibosheth. And Mephibosheth and his son, they're going to sit at my table continually. In a place of royalty. That's like putting amazing into grace. But that's exactly what God does in his kindness, doesn't he? He takes unworthy, broken, dead sinners. And he restores us into a relationship with him to have restored royalty to sit at his table continually you see the picture drawn the kindness of god and the lord's supper god calls us to his table so i want to show you my kindness as a restored sinner and you can eat at my table Continually. Have you ever been in awe of the kindness of God as you've attended the Lord's Supper? Overwhelmed with the kindness of God in and through what Christ has done for us. The anti-type of King David. Or have you said, I don't really need that. I don't need to be restored. I don't need to be. Oh, yeah, well, maybe I need to be restored. But I don't need to be sustained at his table. I'm not a cripple like Mephibosheth. And after all, maybe, maybe God is somehow against me. And he's tricking me at this table. Well, I want you to think about something in 2 Samuel 10 then. Because David thinks, wow, this worked really well with Mephibosheth. I, I, you know what? I'm going to do it to someone else too. Because I also made a covenant with, with the people of Ammon. Hanan is now reigning in and I'm going to show kindness to Hanan, the son of Nahash, as his father showed kindness to me. And so David's going to send unto Hanan servants to show kindness to them. And, and, and Hanan and his crew didn't receive it like Mephibosheth. As a matter of fact, in 2 Samuel 10, they thought David had been sending now servants to spy out on their city. And, and, and they cut off their beards and, and, and cut off their garments in the middle, even at their buttocks, and he sent them away. They despised him. They mocked the servants of God. The servants of David, sorry. And they come back to David and tell him all that has happened. And when David learned it, he sent Joab and all the army and mighty men. And he came and did fought against them. And the Ammonites were destroyed because they mocked 
the kindness of King David. I just leave this application with you, dear congregation. Do we dare to mock the kindness of God toward us? As we prepare for the Lord's Supper, He wants to show it to us. He says, is there anyone left that I might show my kindness to them? King David reminds us of our need as well to show kindness. Because after all, isn't this a fruit of the Spirit? The very character of God? The character of Christ? And it ought to be then our character. And we recognize, don't we, when we examine our own kindness, contrast to God, contrast to David in his good years, as it were, in contrast to us or our flesh. It is so unnatural in our flesh to show kindness. As a matter of fact, Galatians 5, we read in verse 15, if you bite and devour one another, beware lest you be consumed by one another. When you're not showing kindness to one another, you're going to only be consumed by one another and filled with, as we read in verse 20 and 21, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envies, murders. That's who we are by nature. as we read in Titus 3, but we ourselves were also once this, foolish, disobedient, deceiving, serving various lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hating and hateful and hating one another. This is, this is who we are by nature. But when the kindness of God appeared in Christ Jesus, things change. Isn't this evident throughout Scripture? You think of Someone like Cain in Genesis chapter 3, by nature, wanting to go up against, or Genesis 4, going up against Abel, his brother. You think of Saul going up against David, even seeking to kill David. You think of David in, in, in his decline and his backsliding as he murders Uriah because of Bathsheba. All of this we also once were. Isn't that convicting when we look at our own hearts? How quickly we became, become frustrated with one another? How quickly we pour out frustrating comments, boiling with anger? Sometimes just our gestures, they, you know, whether it be hand motions or eyes, and how we look at each other and, or how we don't look at each other, whatever it would be. Are we showing 
kindness? Are, are we filled and pumped up with arrogance and pride, having no time for others, or at least not some others? Are we looking down our nose at others? Are we standoffish, especially when we're dealing with people we, we may not like as well and who come up against us? Do we seek to avoid those types of people and, and filled with jealousy and envy? Are we pouty, arrogant people? We need to examine ourselves. These are the fruit of the flesh. The fruits of the flesh are in contrast to kindness. And what God commands is kindness. As a matter of fact, in Colossians 3, you can find it in Ephesians 4, similarly stated, but Colossians 3 is very clear. Therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on, clothe yourself with tender mercies, kindness, he says. Humility, meekness, long-suffering. Are we putting on clothes? Of kindness. I'm not asking if you're sowing fig leaves of kindness or fruit stapling kindness. That's not what I'm asking. But is God working in you as we, as we work out our salvation by His Spirit with intentionality to produce kindness? Are we seeking to fill our minds with thoughts of kindness? Philippians 4 verse 8 is it's so important, I believe, in this area where, where, where Paul says, finally, brethren, think of these things. Think of things that are true and noble and just and pure and lovely, of good report. If there's any virtue, if there's anything praiseworthy, think and meditate upon these things. Let these things fill your heart and fill your mind. You know, if you want to focus on the negatives of someone or some situation, you, you can focus on all the negatives. And you're going to reflect that in how you act and interact with someone. But if you focus on the positives, what's praiseworthy and what's noble and what's true and just and of good report... You're going to look for those kind of things and situations. And it's going to change how you interact with someone. It begins in your thought. So we pray, oh Holy Spirit, purify my thoughts. Let me find the good things and the virtues in, in someone or some situation and, and, and begin there and work from there rather than all the negatives. Because otherwise our words are going to be words that are filled with malice and anger. And what God says is a kind word turns away wrath. Isn't that amazing sometimes how sometimes your words can change someone's perspective? Just, just listening and being kind. 
might understand who you are and understand your intentions. And a soft answer turns away wrath, we read in Proverbs 15, verse 1. And really, isn't God calling us to open our mouths with kindness, as we find Proverbs 31, the Proverbs woman is, is one who opens her mouth with wisdom, and on her tongue is the law of kindness. Because it's going to reflect in our deeds. How, how, we, how we care for one another. How we, as Paul says in, or the author to Hebrews says in Hebrews 13, that we entertain strangers. Isn't that the most beautiful display of kindness? Is our hospitality. I'm not, I'm not talking about showing hospitality to all your friends and your family. I'm talking about hospitality to people you don't know. People you may not even like very well. On a, on a level, not that you don't like them, but, but that you don't always agree on everything or aren't close to you. Or aren't on the same social level you are on, economic level. Do we show kindness? I don't want to say this because kindness should be done for selfish ambition. But I want to ask you this question. There are times, I'm sure, in your life when you've shown kindness to someone who maybe didn't even deserve it, who maybe even hurt you. And you go home. And you feel good. It's not about feeling good. That's not the purpose of it. But it feels right. It feels wholesome. It feels Christ-like. But when you treated someone with malice, you treated someone with bitterness, treated them in a mean or nasty way, how do you go home? Feeling good about yourself? Usually it doesn't go that way, does it? It just keeps boiling and boiling and boiling and you can't even sleep, maybe. It ruins you because it's the work of the flesh. But the fruit of the Spirit is kindness. Now that doesn't mean kindness is absent from wisdom. We need to exercise great wisdom in kindness. Otherwise, we aren't being kind at all. We need to exercise wisdom and kindness when we give and help people who will only use that to hurt themselves. I think of someone who's a drug-addicted beggar on the end of the street. Giving them a $20 bill isn't necessarily kindness. It's actually probably not very kind at all. But saying, hey, how about we go to McDonald's 
down the street and I'll buy you a meal. And you get food in his stomach. That's kindness. We need to exercise wisdom and kindness. In missions. Just throwing money at people who are in poverty doesn't help them. Or doing things for people that can do it themselves doesn't help them. It actually hurts them. We might feel good and feel like we've done something kind and maybe even give a presentation in church about how kind and good we were in going and building something for someone who could have done it themselves or their own community could have done it and now you've robbed them of the very industry that you went to provide them with. Missions can be unkind and unhelpful in many places of the world. And we need to recognize that. And that's why I value the wisdom of the leaders of Word and Deed, for example, seeking to exercise true kindness and responsibility. And deacons can do the same thing. And the diaconal benevolent ministry, showing kindness to those who are in need. It comes with wisdom, doesn't it, brothers? As we counsel someone, as elders or deacons or, or, or pastor, or mentor someone as Christians, we also need to be kind. Because oftentimes when you're counseling someone, sin is also involved. And to overlook sin because you want to be kind doesn't help. Sin needs to be dealt with. And the ultimate kindness is then caring for their spiritual welfare as a sinner and directing them to the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation. We need wisdom in showing kindness. We need wisdom, even as David had wisdom in dealing with Hanan. When people reject and mock and blaspheme the kindness of God and the kindness that you extend to them, God will judge. We need to have wisdom to know when sometimes we even are seeking to use kindness as a tool of manipulation. Where we want to show forth our kindness and all that we've done so men can praise us and see all of our good works. And we prayed them around as those who are so kind. It's another sin of pride. God help us to examine our kindness. Also in this week of preparation for the Lord's Supper. Because dear congregation, I want to say this in closing. We aren't just preparing for the Lord's Supper next Sunday. That's important. But ultimately, we're preparing for eternity. And Jesus says that your eternal destination will be dependent and shown in your kindness. 
Ultimately, it's all dependent on Christ and his kindness and his love and his forgiveness of sin. Don't get me wrong. But it will be reflected in your kindness. Because he says there's two, two, two people. The sheep on one hand and the goats on the other. And those who are being prepared to come into his kingdom, into his glory, will be those who have kindness. Because he'll say to those who are on the right hand, Come, my blessed of my Father, we read in Matthew 25, verse 34. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For when I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you took me in. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. And the righteous will answer, saying, Lord, when did I see you hungry and feed you, thirsty and give you drink? When did I see you a stranger and take you in, or naked and clothe you? Or when did I see you sick and in prison and come to you? And the king will answer what? Assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did it to the one of the least of my brethren, you have done it to me. Those are those who are on his right hand, who he welcomes into his kingdom. I want to tell you as we look and examine ourselves in light of the fruit of the Spirit, we will find ourselves falling far short. We might be convicted of that this afternoon. There will not be perfection here below. There will not be perfection in our life. But dear congregation, I just simply ask you, are there evidences of these fruits in your life. A small beginning, small sparks even, of these graces. If there isn't, you need to flee to Jesus today, confessing that, finding his kindness. And if you don't Find that kindness and trust in that kindness of what Christ has done. You really have no part of his kingdom. And you have no part of the Lord's Supper. But if you do, and you see something has changed in your life, and you desire even more of this kindness, then this supper is for you. that you would be strengthened in your faith and desire even to reflect that kindness and to be clothed with that kindness even to a greater extent. May God grant us a good week of preparation. Also now as we turn to the form for the administration of the Lord's Supper. <clears throat> I'd like to turn to that now and and read the first, first part of the form in way of self-examination. Beloved in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Holy Supper has been instituted by our Lord Jesus Christ. 
Listen to the words of this institution as they, have, as they are described by the Apostle Paul. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you, and do this in remembrance of me. And in the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. 1 Corinthians 11. That we may now celebrate the supper of the Lord to our comfort, it is necessary rightly to examine ourselves and further to consider carefully that purpose for which Christ has ordained this sacrament, namely, to do this in remembrance of him. The true examination consists of three parts. First, let each of you carefully consider your sins and the curse due for them, so that you loathe and humble yourself before God, considering that the wrath of God against sin is so great that he, rather than leaving it unpunished, has punished it in his beloved Son, Jesus Christ, with the bitter and shameful death of the cross. Second, let each of you examine whether you believe this trustworthy promise of God that all your sins are forgiven only through the cross of Jesus Christ and that the perfect righteousness of Christ is graciously imputed to you as your own. Indeed, so completely as if you personally had satisfied for all your sins and fulfilled all righteousness. Third, let each of you carefully examine your own conscience to see if you are determined to show true thankfulness to God in every area of life and to walk sincerely before his face, face striving to lay aside all hostility, hatred, and envy, resolving from this day forward to live in true love and unity with your neighbor, showing kindness to them. All those then who are of this mind, God will certainly receive in grace as worthy partakers of the table of Christ. On the contrary, those who do not believe this testimony in their hearts eat and drink judgment upon themselves. Therefore, according to God's word, we admonish all those who are guilty and continue in the following sins to abstain from the table of the Lord and declare that they have no part in the kingdom of Christ. All who refuse to trust in the Lord alone serve him in their own way. Abuse the name of the Lord. Do not diligently attend the worship services and neglect the holiness of the Lord's day. Rebel against authority. Violate human life. Cherish hatred and bitterness. Do not keep themselves sexually pure. All who by stealing or extravagance lead a worldly life. Liars, backbiters, slanderers. All, those, all who show themselves to be unbelieving by leading an offensive life. As long as they continue in such sins, they shall not take of this food, which Christ has ordained only for his believers. Otherwise, their judgment and condemnation will be the heavier. But, beloved brothers and sisters, this warning is not intended to discourage those believers with broken and contrite hearts, as if none might come to the Lord's Supper except the sinless. 
We do not come to this supper to declare that we are perfect and righteous in ourselves, but on the contrary, groaning under the body of this death, we seek our life outside ourselves in Jesus Christ. We come confessing that we have many shortcomings, that we do not have perfect faith. We do not serve God with sufficient zeal, but we must struggle daily with the weakness of our faith and against the evil lusts of our flesh. However, the grace of the Holy Spirit makes us sorry for our shortcomings, gives us the desire to live according to all God's commandments, and helps us to fight against unbelief. Therefore, we can rest assured that no sin or weakness, which still remains in us against our will, can prevent us from being received of God by God in grace and mercy as worthy partakers of this heavenly food and drink. As far as form or the ministration of the Lord's Supper, let us pray for God's blessing and preparation for it. Almighty God, we give thanks for who you are, God who is love and who is kind. So kind. And it is absolutely amazing to us. And the very fact that you delight in your own kindness and your kindness is worthy of our praise and our boast. We pray, O oh Lord, that we would reflect your kindness, even as reflected by your servant David, but especially in your son, the Lord Jesus Christ. May that kindness be reflected in us. And may we examine our hearts and in our lives in preparation for the Lord's Supper, keeping a short account with you and with others in relationship to our kindness. Have mercy upon us, O Lord, for when we were not kind, And grant us the grace, O Lord, to go forth in wisdom and in kindness, looking to Jesus, the author and finisher, the perfecter of our faith, who is ultimately kind. And may we then celebrate this supper reflecting on his kindness and the kindness that was displayed on the cross of Calvary. We pray it in Jesus' precious name. Amen.